and welcome to Two Real Cinema Club. I'm James Zika. And I am Andres Lorente. And each week on Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies, one old, one new, and we try to draw some connections between the two. And this week we'll be uh, looking at uh, Jurassic Park from 2022, a new uh, Jurassic Park <laughs> new film. Jurassic Park. Yeah, a new one. Jurassic World. Yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not just oh. a park anymore. Oh my God, you're right. It's a world. And I'm going to lead like, I'm gonna lead with a confession here in a moment, but um, I think it's called Dominion. Correct me if I'm wrong. Jurassic yeah, World Dominion. Yeah, like, like, like as a sentence. It feels like there should be a colon or a semicolon or at least a comma yeah. or something, but no, it's just Jurassic World Dominion. It's just, yeah. It's just yeah, a bunch of words. A bunch of words. And uh, the other film we're looking at is the 1954 classic, the original Godzilla, which is Gojira in Japanese, and it was directed by um, Ishiro Honda, who actually worked with um, Akira Kurosawa quite a bit, I think, as a cinematographer, and they were good friends. They made very different films over the years, but um, he was actually instrumental in some of uh, Kurosawa's later films. So we'll be looking at those two films and talking about them, and I'm going to start with a Jurassic Confession, (laughs) and then after we talk about it, I'm going to have a Jurassic Concession. (laughs) What is so your confession? Confess. My confession is I've friends. never I've never watched a Jurassic film before last Ooh. week. Or, um, and uh, I've seen, you know, clips, I've seen trailers, uh, passing cable news in the middle of the night, maybe seen a scene or two, but I've never actually watched an entire film. So this was the first time I did that. So mm. that's my confession. I, I'm guessing that you're an expert on Jurassic, all things Jurassic. Well, I haven't seen all of them, you know, this, but there's, there are six films to catch up on. I have seen the original mm, okay. three or four times, maybe more, actually. So the original 93 Jurassic Park. I saw that twice in the cinema in 1993 um, wow. and then seen it several times since. Did show it to the children a couple of years ago and it was a bit too scary for them. So that's, that's one of my parental regrets, actually, Oops. making them sit through through dinosaur violence at too young and impressionable an age. Oh, I wasn't scared enough during this movie. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, <laughs> later. But I was scared by the wrong things, maybe. Yeah. Uh, before we talk about the films, I'm going to do the socials. Oh, please, please. Um, because cause that's what you're supposed to do when you do a podcast. So um, thank you for listening. And uh, if you want to uh, get in contact with us, we are on Twitter at Two Real Cine Club. We're on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club. Uh, we have a website now, Two Real Cinema Club.com. And you can email us, Two Real Cinema Club at gmail.com. So there is no excuse. Uh, track us down, have a look, see what we've typed, uh, see what we took a picture of, uh, make some kind of abusive comment if you wish. <laughs> uh, looking forward to that. So Jurassic World Dominion, um, it's been uh, yeah, a big opening, third film in the second round of trilogies Oof. in this oh, ongoing dino saga. Third film directed <laughs> by Colin Trevorrow. Um, and uh, this time around written by him and Emily Carmichael, whose other previous credit is Pacific Rim Uprising. Yeah, make, make of that what you will. Uh, so um, I'd rather not. Let me, let, let me tell you about the story of yeah. Jurassic World Dominion. There's basically there's two strands in this story. It's that classic kind of Raymond Chandler strategy, two strands that end up being connected. It's largely a film about locusts. So locusts uh, are devastating crops across the United States. And Laura Dern, as a kind of paleontologist and locust expert, comes in to investigate 
Um, she asks her old buddy from the first Jurassic Park movie, Sam Neill, to accompany her to get a sample of locust DNA from Biosyn, who are like a big biotech company, um, because she's been invited by Jeff Goldblum, also from the first Jurassic Park movie. He's working for Biosyn now because um, he uh, wants to uh, to let Laura Dern and the world know that these locusts, the devastating crops, um, were actually invented maybe by Biosyn. The other strand sees um, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard living with a, a, a truculent 14-year-old girl, Maisie, who is hiding because apparently she's some kind of genetic wonder clone child and there's a danger that she might be kidnapped because people might use her genes for, for something. And uh, surprisingly, 15 minutes into the film, she is kidnapped um, by the people at Biosyn, remember them, um, so Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard, uh, they go off to get her back and they track her down to Malta. And from there, they track her down to the Biosyn uh, campus uh, in the Dolomite Mountains uh, in Italy. Uh, the, the campus there looks exactly like the Apple campus. And as far as I can tell, it seems to be run by Tim Cook, being played yeah. by Campbell Scott here. Yeah. <laughs> um, and at the Biosyn campus, they also then run into uh, Sam Neill and Laura Dern who've uh, been collecting their locust evidence with help from Jeff Goldblum. Um, and so uh, the three, the, the, the two bunch of uh, groups of them, they all meet up because uh, Tim Cook is so incensed by someone finding out about his locust secret that he sets fire to his genetically uh, modified locusts. And I don't know what these locusts are made of, but they burn for hours. The, the locusts are on, on, on fire for absolutely hours and they, they spread a wildfire through the forests of, of northern Italy um, the whole facility uh, goes up in smoke. There's a terrible disaster. Uh, the characters just about manage to escape in time. And by the way, there are some dinosaurs in the background of the movie. But but overall, the story that we get told has really has nothing to do with dinosaurs. In fact, it's it's been written in such a way that you could remove all dinosaur references and the story would still work about as well as it does now. So... Not exactly what I was expecting from a mm. Jurassic movie. Did you enjoy Jurassic World Dominion? Um, um, I always say no. <laughs> That's what I'm expecting. That's what I'm waiting for you to say. Uh, <laughs> and I, usually, I put a pregnant pause in. I say, no. <laughs> um, but that's it's not entirely true. I, I had an interesting experience with this film because... Um, yeah, interesting. Because, that's what my mother called everything that was bad. Uh, interesting. interesting. Yeah, exactly. It's such a, a harmless adjective and it's <laughs> pointless, really. But um, I had an experience uh, with the <laughs> film. I normally don't sit among the people. I usually am, because I'm sort of trying to take notes, I'm either up front where there's enough light from the screen where I can write down some notes... And I like to right. see things big if I'm in the cinema, so I do want to sit close. Or I sit in the back and I'm toying with my phone to try and uh, get just enough light to write notes. So this time I was actually sort of just, it wasn't a big crowd, but there were probably 30 or 40 people okay, there. Okay, not bad. Um, so I sat kind of right in the middle and I wanted to laugh so badly because I thought <laughs> there was just so much humor in this film unintentionally. Um, and it was one of those things where I thought people might be laughing too and we could have a good time with it. But no, people were taking it very seriously. Ooh. So that changed my mood entirely. Um, so it was definitely a different experience being just more part of the crowd. And I just needed to, I think, have that experience to see how 
the other half lives, I guess. How people who want to see these films go out and see them and pay money. The common and... folk, yes. yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I'll come back to that later too. But um, yeah, I had my biggest problem was I just I, I couldn't tell how bad the acting was or how bad the script was and what the relationship was between the two. Like I, I, there were so many clunky lines and lots of. Um, uh, just very surface dialogue between characters yeah. that it drove me crazy, um, and I thought it was just, it was it was laughable. And I think laughing at dialogue is a lot harder than laughing at uh, some just ridiculous looking scene. I think people are probably more likely to laugh um, at that than at dialogue. So I, I had a really hard time figuring out like, is it the script that's just dragging the actors down, and there's no way to do it? Is it a directing issue? Like you're not trying to make it feel more authentic. It's just the, the writing on the page felt so on the nose all throughout the film. I must say, I, uh, I felt like it was very much, it's it's a script problem. We're at yeah. a stage now where computer graphics, so wonderful, that, yeah. you know, largely I'm happy to suspend my belief and believe that there are dinosaurs running through Malta. Yeah. And, and there are some, some you know, really enjoyable set pieces in the film. There's yeah. a, like there's a chase through Malta on a on a like a, a motorbike and a jeep and and, it, and hilariously wonderfully it ends with like um, uh, as Chris Pratt just manages to get his motorbike in the in the back of the plane as it takes off oh, yeah. like a split second of a dinosaur flying behind him on a motorbike in midair. Yeah. <laughs> the one best image I want to take back from the whole film. You know, there's other, there's like the dinosaur raid at night in on the lookout station, and there's like a fight yeah. on a frozen lake. There's a whole bunch of great action yeah. set pieces that I think really work, and I think Colin Trevorrow can do those. Yeah. And I think the cast. This is a, this is a five star cast: Chris Pratt, Sam yeah. Neill, um, Jeff Goldblum. Bryce Dallas Howard. I mean, these are people who are you know great actors who can um, deliver a great script. They've got the funny. These are all actors who can be you know, tremendously funny, tremendously yeah. entertaining, very warm. You know, uh, they have the skills. Yeah. Um, and I think you know the reason that the film as a whole really kind of falls flat. I think I think you have to narrow it down to the script. Yeah. Because okay. here's here's a, a cast you could sell a great script. You know, in in uh, in quick quick order but um but they they haven't got the script to sell you're exactly no. right about this kind of this leaden dialogue uh, um dialogue Tell i made a little note that basically every time a character meets another character um, they tell each other the other character's name it's it's constantly yeah. that you know that um <laughs> sam, sam neil meets laura dern for the first time in many years and he tells her oh your name is Ellie Sadler. She said, yeah, exactly. "Oh, you're Alan Grant." <laughs> it's like it's like people meeting at a conference with big badges on their chest. It's yeah. just absurd. Exactly, and you but you have thirty years of, of films to sort of catch up on or be reminded of, I guess. And it's yeah. very funny because we just did this with Top Gun, and I thought they did a pretty good job with Top Gun. But there's this uh, opening news news segment mm. that covers a lot of material about how humans are now living among well, dinosaurs are living among us, and humans are sort of harvesting them and controlling them um so you sort of get up to date so even though i've never seen a jurassic film before um i had a pretty good update because of the newscast that sort of opened the whole thing and, and you know that's a great way to get exposition out of the way but it was also you know not a strength in the script by any means but i'm, I'm glad you sort of agree because i just felt like the, the actors they're definitely talented they could do it yeah but i felt absolutely. that the script was so weak the one person who can pull it off is jeff goldblum i thought he was just great and i think he can take <laughs> he's got this just this presence where he can take bad material and that you know, he's funny. You're allowed to laugh at the film when Jeff Goldblum's in it because he's so good and he can take that script and, and make it funny. 
But there were other parts that I wanted to laugh at because they were so bad, and I didn't have the permission structure to do that with the audience I was in. So, I, I think a lot of the pleasure I took out of the film was the fun of seeing the original 1993 cast back together yeah. again. Yeah. Um, it's especially fun because Jeff Goldblum seems to have exactly the same outfit that he was wearing in 1993, <laughs> like exactly the same. Just fantastic. Why, why, if, it, if it works for you, why change it? Yeah. Um, and there's, there is something kind of actually quite fond and endearing about you know, the elderly Sam Neill and Laura Dern. I mean, they're not mm. elderly, but you know, they're knocking on a bit. But um, about them kind of getting back together and there's a, yeah. you know, a bit of proper warmth and, um, you know, and it's an enjoyable chemistry between those characters. But the big difference between the way their characters worked in the original and the way that they are written in this current film is that in the new film, you know, they're not allowed to do anything clever or resourceful. In the original film, um, Sam Neill and Laura Dern, they're brought along to the dinosaur island because they're experts and they know all about dinosaurs. Yeah. And they're the ones with the scientific knowledge that means that you know, they know how to escape the dinosaurs and they know what the dinosaurs' weak points will be and what to look out for. And so it's their knowledge and resourcefulness that moves the story on, and yeah. and um, you know it gives them uh, you know a, a something to do. Whereas in this film, I think no one's allowed to be clever. Laura Dern is told like to get a DNA sample of a, of, of a locust, and then she's given a key card yeah. by Jeff Goldblum to get into the secret lab, and mm-hmm. then the guy leading the tour says, oh, "I'm going to leave you alone for half an hour. You yeah. can wander around and do what you like." And so it's it's just Laura Dern, you know, obeying. A recipe. She's given yeah. a set of instructions. She follows the instructions. She does the thing that she's asked to do, um, and it, it's just terribly mechanical, and just doesn't allow people to feel kind of sparky or uh, intelligent. It doesn't let people surprise you um, or or come up with a, a strategy. Um, you know, their, their strategy throughout most of the film, when they find the dinosaurs or they find the locusts, is just it's either run away or it stands still or it stands yeah. still for a bit. Look at the dinosaur and then run and away. Then run. Yes. <laughs> so uh, it's 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 such a shame. I tell you what it reminded me of um, is it, uh, like the way that characters are introduced, I think, um, makes such a difference to the way that you enjoy a film. It reminded me a little bit of Terminator 2, whatever mm-hmm. people might say about James Cameron. Yeah. He's a really, really good scriptwriter. Really knows what he's doing. I don't know whether you remember Terminator Two, the way that the characters were introduced in that movie. Um, I don't. That uh, so uh, so when um, when John Connor is introduced, like as this kind of surly teen, you see him hacking. So you know he's you know he's got a bit of savvy with technology, and he's riding mm. this motorbike, which comes into the story later. And when yeah. Sarah Connor is introduced, she's doing chin ups like in in this psychiatric hospital. So that you know that she is tough but deranged, and the way that characters are introduced tells you something about them, which then comes into the story. Whereas the way that the characters are introduced in this film. Um, it's, it's just uninspiring and tells you nothing about them. You see that Chris Pratt uh, is riding a horse trying to catch a dinosaur. And that's it. He never rides a horse in any of the rest of the film. He doesn't really catch any dinosaurs in the rest of the film. He's just kind of, it's just that they wanted to get a scene of him riding a horse. Or um, Bryce Dallas Howard is seen sort of releasing some dinosaurs from a from a kind of dino farm. Yeah, Stegosaurus, uh, by, baby Stegosaurus. Right, so, right yeah, yeah, so she, she kind of does this at the beginning of the film. But then... Uh, it kind of doesn't uh, doesn't display any skills that 
um, help her solve a problem later on. Doesn't really do any of that activity later on in the film. When at one point in the film, she says um, to to Campbell Scott, playing the Tim Cook character, oh, you know, that um, when he says that he gives the dinosaurs instructions by using electric shocks in the head, she says, oh, that sounds a bit cruel, doesn't it? Have you thought about that? And then half an hour later, she is literally tasering a dinosaur in the eye. Yes. It's like, I, it, it, I don't understand her character. What? So, because uh, I, think, I think the reason I don't understand is because they haven't really quite figured out who she is or, or why we want to spend an two and a half hours with her. I, th- I think it's this fundamental problem with the characters and the way that they've been introduced and figured out. Yeah. Well, you, you went through that long list of things that happen and these set pieces that happen, um, but it's all very superficial ultimately. Like Nothing really sticks. Um, yeah. and I don't feel like that they're, they're... It doesn't actually feel like they're really going through much of a joint experience. I was trying to figure out the timeline of this film because, yeah, they're in Italy, they're in Malta, they're all over the place. I've never seen anyone stop for a, a bite to eat or go to the <laughs> bathroom. There was... There was no no one ever slept in the film, so it feels like it was just a couple hours of roaming around the earth, uh, <laughs> battling dinosaurs and evil uh, corporate types. But I had a really hard time seeing them all together, and they are split stories at one point. When it, and you know it goes back and forth. It's an epic kind of film, so you get ten minutes with one thing, you forgot right, what was yeah. going in the, on in, in the B plot, and then that plot comes back to you, and then you forget about the A plot, and it sort of just it lacked flow and it lacked this sort of together experience. I think for the for the characters as a result. Um, I think w- one thing that really bothered me, it just wasn't scary enough. It, like the, I didn't uh. find the dinosaurs that scary. I didn't find Campbell Scott was lovely um, as, <laughs> as, as, as the Tim, the Tim Cook characters you said, but um, uh, he wasn't that sinister and it was so easy to get around their campus and, you know, uh, undermine their defense systems. <laughs> yeah, they and, terrible and, security there. Yeah, they? Terrible yes. security for something that's supposed to be so, so airtight. So just, it w- stuff wasn't scary. And the monsters, I, I, I've seen this, so many times now where the dinosaur's head is within two inches of the human head and just slobbering and, and just razor-sharp teeth and they're ready to eat uh, the actor, the character. It never happens. They're just not dangerous. You know, they, they, they make a lot of noise. There's a lot of barking, but there's no bite. So I, I, I just, you can't do that again and again and expect me to be scared of the of the dinosaur, there's no dis- decapitations, no dismemberment, no dinosaur masticating on human limbs or anything of the sort. So it's just, they're not scary. And the final did, battle isn't even between humans and, and dinosaurs. It's sort of between these two, uh, I don't know what they were called. They were beyond uh, Tyrannosaurus rex. It was this yeah, new... Gigantosaurus a, Gigantosaurus, Gigantosaurus yeah, exactly. B, yeah. So it's interesting yeah. that they kicked the the humans out of that final conflict. It actually ends up being one, one bad dinosaur against another end. Um, <laughs> yes, where, where it's like the stakes are not entirely obvious, and the way that it affects our characters doesn't it yeah. doesn't doesn't seem to have any bearing really. It's, it's something that happens in the background, doesn't it? While they run away to get to get yeah. in the chopper. To be fair, there is I there is I do remember quite vividly one person in the background being eaten by a dinosaur. It's oh, after okay. after Chris Pratt uh, releases a whole load of dinosaurs out into the streets oh. of Malta. Um, And uh, um, one of these dancers is wandering through a a square in Valletta and he uh, just bends over and eats a man. But but the reason I remember it is because the man that he eats is on one of those really annoying electric scooters. So I didn't mind that he was eaten, in fact. (laughs) He deserved it. (laughs) He deserved it. (laughs) Well... There are two characters, I think, who actually come off not too badly from this film. Okay. Uh, one of them is Maisie, the 14-year-old girl. Yeah. 
I, I saw this film with a 14-year-old girl oh. and actually her portrayal of a, you know, a, a sort of a bright but slightly moody 14-year-old girl seemed extremely believable to yeah. me. I thought it was credible and I thought she did well with what she was given to do. And I, I sense that maybe the next Jurassic film will probably feature her a bit more. Yeah, um, I guess you... Yeah, I, I presume that she's being groomed to be another... Yeah. Yeah, and there's Jurassic this, like, I mean, her story is important because I think there's this entire uh, theme of motherhood or parenting in this film. Um, it's very strange, though, because last I knew, dinosaurs were more like reptiles and probably didn't give much of a much of a shit about their own babies yeah. and whatnot. Where in this film, they, they, they're trying to make them like, maybe it's because they've been living with humans, they've become more mammalian and they're, they care about their young. So when Maisie is kidnapped, also... Um, a dinosaur named Beta, I think she calls him Beta, right, yeah. is kidnapped from, and they just happen to sort of live nearby Maisie and, and Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, so th- there's this sort of theme about motherhood and like raising one another, and you don't have to be um, the biological mother, I think that was the case, or the biological father to be a good parent, or um, you don't have to, I think Beta was a clone, I guess, right, from the from the mother or something like that. I, so you don't have to be alive born, I guess, or to, ha- to have a relationship uh, with your mother or whatnot. There's this mothering theme or this parenting theme that they're trying to get at, but it doesn't really work because I don't think dinosaurs really ever operated on that level. So that yeah, was yeah. I feel like that theme kind of doesn't, yeah, it doesn't really quite land. I, I wrote my notes here, theme question mark. The only theme that I could fi- find for the movie is, Tim Cook is bad. I think I think that's the underlying theme of the movie. That's the only oh. thing I took home from it. The other character I think actually comes out not too bad is um, yeah. uh, is Kayla Watts, um, who uh, is uh, Dewanda Wise, who's like uh, the the uh, pilot. She's a pilot. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Who's this kind of sort of tough, sassy yep. pilot, um, who uh, yeah, is kind of is a very watchable character, although still underserved by the script. There's a scene where her beloved plane gets smashed into the side of it on the top of a glacier or like a frozen yes. lake. Yep. You know, and they, they crawl out. And I don't know, I was kind of inwardly cursing because you, you would think that any scriptwriter worth their salt would have written you know, some kind of, you know, a quip or in an emotional line or something there. But all she says, she looks at the boat, the plane, and she says, that's my baby. And then and then they kind of they get on with the story. And I think, oh, that, that really feels like a placeholder line where they yeah. were going to come up with something a little bit wittier or yeah. fresher or cleverer on, on set. And they never did. And it's so um, and the other thing that's terribly disappointing about her character is that um, so she's gay, but uh, but her being gay only comes up in one oh, very yeah. easily cut line at the end of one scene. Mm-hmm. It's such a cynical um, uh, box ticking. To get an LGBTQ character in your movie, yeah, I yeah. think I feel, I feel like there was there was a meeting at some point where someone said, uh, "Have you got a woman in this movie? Tick. Yeah. Uh, have you got a black person in this movie? Tick. Yeah. Have you got an LGBTQ character <laughs> in this movie? Oh, tick." And then they should have asked, "Is that all the same person?" Yeah. <laughs> and, it, and it is. It's uh, it's uh, it's kind of frustrating. Yeah. And I presume that. Um, Jurassic World Dominion is looking to make a great deal of money from markets where um, LGBTQ characters will not be uh, welcome. So they've incorporated the character in such a way that she can be trimmed and cut very, very easily sure. with minimal disruption to the film, which it, it just strikes me as so disappointingly cynical. Yeah. And that is a throwaway line, unless you think of the theme as being motherhood. Like that plane is her baby, and she's taking care of that just as the way as the oh, very good. Pratt and Howard are taking care of Maisie, and um, 
and the dinosaur is taking care of its child somehow. It's just, uh, I think that's just, a, it was kind of an obvious theme, I think. So maybe that line is in there for that. Oh, oh I see. You're, as you usual, your reading is much deeper than mine. I'm, well, I'm going to, I'm being very generous on this film. <laughs> you will probably laugh at me with what I say here in a few minutes. But um, uh, yeah, you've got to be generous to look for, I think, the zeitgeist in the film, I guess, or, or what the film is really about, or what the film is accidentally about. I think it might be accidental <laughs> for me. What is what um, is this film accidentally about? I think it's about it's accidentally about um, a couple of things. I think the one of my favorite images is this swarm of burning, ravenous locusts, and I think that's a great metaphor for environmental disaster. Um, that seemed really oh, scary yeah. to me because yeah. if they're not going to eat you uh, all the way to hell, they're going to burn you uh, with their dying carcasses all the way to hell. So I thought, you know, I think there's a good idea there. There's a great idea because um, in the, is it Biosyn uh, world and Campbell Scott's mind, there's this idea that you could get these um, locusts to eat the corn of their competitor companies. Like Biosyn is com- creating this certain um, strain of corn um, and if you're not growing that strain of corn, they're going to send out the locusts to eat uh, whatever you're growing. And I, I mean, I, I love that corporate criticism, that corporate critique that's in there. I think that was um, pretty well done. It wasn't, I don't think they spent a whole lot of time on it, but I like that idea. There are a couple of good right, ideas yep. in this film. Um, the biggest problem is that the stakes are never very real. There's like tons of adversity, but it's all, as you said before, it's too easily overcome. Uh, you can get into all the secret places without uh, any effort whatsoever. So that, as a result, it's just nothing stuck to me. It was like it was superficial. This is a very, very surface film. Um, but I dug a little bit, and I think I know what it's kind of about. Um, right. And um, I think it's about, and it's interesting that you made the the diversity um, comment because they ticked a box there. But I, I think this film is kind of about immigration and living with different people. Ah. Um, and I, I don't know, again, I don't know if that's accidental or intentional, but um, the dinosaurs are here. They're living among us now. Um, and some people are exploiting them. Some people are even, you know, um, trying to kill them. Um, but it's a reality and it's a changing world. And I think that that's what they're trying to go after. It's, it seems a little over optimistic perhaps, but um, I think there's a message buried in there. Um and this is not cinema. This is not a thinking person's movie, I don't think. But it's it's really much more like this, I don't know, self-sequeling intellectual property that we're going to see again and again because it makes <laughs> money worldwide. But I think at first I, I was I felt like a snob and like there's some ideas in here that could be great if they were really explored. And it, but it has to be a different film. And then I turned right. around a little bit. And this is the concession: is that I think films like this, I would. I call them like the stained glass church windows of yore. It's like you're telling stories to teach people stuff. And I think there is some kind of immigration message in here or some sort of diversity message in here um, that it's, again, everything in this film is kind of superficial, but it's almost too superficial. They don't spend enough time on it, exploring it. And none of those like on the nose pieces of dialogue tell you this. But I think this is where we need ideas in films. Like in this, this is a massive hit film. It's going to reach a huge audience worldwide. And I'm starting to think, well, this is exactly the type of film that ha- should have a good message in it. You don't. An art film is going to play to a small audience, and they're already thinking about these things anyway. But if you can get these kinds of ideas into the uh, the mainstream cinema and the box office um, blockbusters, then um, you know, it's good. That it's might good. Be it the, does work. The, the quality. The the the, the, the theme. That you, if if you spot this theme, yeah. then the take home message you take is that, um, you know, we we're now we're going to have to live with, you know, people who are. 
different to us. Yeah. And what's more, those people will probably eat my children and steal my electric scooter. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes, I mean, it's got both sides of the immigration issue buried in it right there uh, for all to see, I guess. Um, yeah, so that's what, I mean, that was what I took away. And I, uh, again, you know, I opened by saying, you know, I wanted to be laughing at this film the whole time. And I really don't like films like this, but people obviously go out and see them or they put it online and, and they watch it. So these are popular films and they can have good messages, but I might be totally wrong. That might not be what the, the, the filmmakers had in mind at all. But you know, there's got to be some touchstone in present day culture or the present day state of the world that um, resonates through the film. And, and that's what I got. I don't know. If that's you got a, that that's a really nice way to think about it. I think yeah. actually I'm impressed. Um, no. I, I wish I shared your goodwill and optimism. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder whether I, I I worry that it's yeah it's it there's an awful lot more selling toys than there is yeah well holding hands and togetherness in this film but may yeah, I well, ask you something I will no, say you're that, right you're right you're right it's yeah. it's 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 um immigration and motherhood is yeah. is what this film is about I think it's those things but it hides it very well it does hide it and you know the the again that final confrontation is bad monster against bad monster it's not human it's not the the american crew or anything like that so you, you begin to think oh that's really cynical because you're you're just pitting the more vulnerable against each other or the people that you're trying to control you're pitting them against each other um and then the evangelical thing that i saw in all this i've been listening to a little bit of podcast on an evangelist um, right. It's like anything can happen. It doesn't matter. Jesus is going to come and, and save us all. So all this genetic engineering, <laughs> all this trashing of the planet doesn't matter at all because, you know, eventually Jesus is going to make everything all right. And I think that's oh, in there that too. That is terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So we'll probably hear from some of the evangelicals. But uh, so there, I, I got that too. But I, I really feel I do like the corporate critique in there. I, lo- I just wish they were more evil and I wish... Um, Either the environmental theme had been explored a bit more or just this corporate uh, uh, dubiousness explored a bit more or if the motherhood and the immigration themes are really there. I wish they'd explored them more. But again, it's a big picture. It's it's a popcorn movie, so maybe it's yeah, not supposed it's, it's, to function yeah, on that level. Yeah, it's a popcorn movie full, full of these kind of dropped strands, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So there, so yeah, there are some ideas that are unearthed, but then, yeah, then dropped again. Well, um, let's have a break. Um, and then we'll see whether we can find any kind of metaphor or any comment on the world in 1954's Godzilla. Let's see if there's got anything in there. We'll be back in a minute. And we are back from Jurassic World. Next, we talk about... Thankfully. Yes, thankfully. Um, next, we talk about uh, Gojira, or Godzilla. That's the original Godzilla film from 1954. And just during the break, we were talking about how uh, the original Jurassic film, uh, Jurassic Park, um, was strong. Like, it it, mm. it, it it had a meaning. And I think... I'm going to say the same thing about this Godzilla film. I have, I've seen a lot of the Godzilla films, and I think that... Ultimately, when you over-sequelize these things, they just get weaker and weaker. And I suspect that's going on in the Jurassic World. Um, the Godzilla films, I have seen a lot more of them on cable TV as a kid, and there wasn't a lot to them. But I'm going to say that this film, uh, like the original Jurassic, really strong film. Yeah. And it's got the original ideas. It's fresh. Um, 
And um, I think I think that yeah, that I, I can understand why you want to make sequels uh, and visit the same characters and, and the same uh, issues. But um, I think generally it's better to just show some restraint and say, look, we've made a great film. We don't need to make sixteen more films. <laughs> I think more than sixteen, haven't there? Been, yeah, there's been like a lot. thirty or more, haven't there? I mean, incredible yeah. number of Godzilla yeah. films. Unbelievable. And Ishiro Honda was involved in many, many of them. If you look at the IMDb on him, um, mm. you'll see that he made a lot of a lot of Godzilla films. Godzilla versus this, Godzilla versus that. Um, it's and, not broke, don't fix it. Yeah, and it's it's kind of, I mean, for me, it's a little bit of a pity that it gets overexposed and oversaturated um, because, as I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a very good film. It's very much a noir film. I think that really can, that was really surprising right, to yeah. me, just how much of a, like a film noir it felt like, um, obviously influenced by some of the American films going on at the same time. 1954, so we're within 10 years of the end of World War uh, Two, and... Um, I, I felt like I was right in the tone and the story world in the credits before I'd even seen mm. an image. The credits do not feature any images. It's just um, text on a black background, white text on a black background with a really pulsing score, mostly strings, but there are sounds of war in there and moaning and creatures yelling. And it's just some of it's with instruments, but I think some of it are other um, audio effects and it just sets the tone before you've incredible sound design isn't it yeah. just amazing yeah. i really read up on this actually apparently the sound of godzilla which is this this you know, spine tingling sound right at yeah. the beginning of the film apparently they experimented with all sorts of different ways to make the sound and they recorded like real live animals and wow. sound effects and stuff and what they went with this is the sound of a double bass that's being rubbed with a leather glove oh god apparently that is the sound of godzilla and then they and then they slow down the tape yeah. But it's just this incredible sound, and it does sound kind of organic. Yeah. And I suppose you know, well, the, those strings on the double bass will be like the vocal cords of a giant monster. I mean, I can Probably, see how they've yeah. come to, to to think of this, but it's just an amazing sound. Yeah. Uh, opening images of the ocean in our rear view. It's it's funny because the opening image of Jurassic World Dominion was sort of a false promise. There was this massive sea dinosaur that comes up and eats an entire like crate full of crabs as the, and tips over the fishing boat as these guys are trying to bring in their catch. And we never saw that. We never again. see it again. Yes, that's... we never went. I don't think we went into the ocean again. We went underwater a little bit with some of the dinosaurs, but um, whereas this image comes back in the end and you're just sort of reversing it, but it's in our rear view at the beginning. Um, some Japanese sailors are exposed to a radiation explosion in a storm. One ship goes down. Another ship goes out to try and uh, look for survivors. That ship, uh, ship goes down. Uh, and suddenly, no, the, the various village fishermen around the islands are not getting any fish. And there's already this myth of Godzilla out there that um, after the fish disappears, this creature Godzilla will come and eat the humans. Um, which uh, is new to me. I don't remember that uh, Godzilla preceded the... The um, actual, um, you know, the, the, this actual event, I thought it was created out of the sort of atomic bond, but actually sort of this tradition of um, this creature uh, sort of battling with the village fishermen. And there's this one moment where they're talking about the loss of tradition that I really liked, because um, we're going to see a lot of like sort of anti-nuclear, anti-war themes, but... Um, the only tradition, it, it seems like they used to sacrifice young girls to Godzilla right, in a yeah. dance. I thought that was really interesting. And then they've lost that tradition. Only this dance of um, the, the, like the, the procedure or the process before you sacrifice the girl, only the, that dance that lives on. And some people are bemoaning the fact that J Japanese culture has changed. 
Um, and that was interesting. Um, mm. so I like that theme. Um, you you got to go with it. This is a 1954 film, so the the miniatures are all over the film, and it's adorable. It, it seems kind of quaint at times, and and it might not seem as scary as what we've got now in terms of CGI and um, and computer generated stuff. But um, I'll, I'll talk about how I was more scared about this than I was about Jurassic Park. I mean, those um, miniatures are beautifully made, in fact, yeah, aren't they? I mean, it's, it's just yeah, really it's a beautiful miniature Tokyo. Yeah, such craftsmanship. Is, it's yeah. fantastic. And this is seventy something years, almost seventy years ago, something like yeah. that. So, um, so Godzilla's sort of traveling around, wreaking havoc. Uh, people are lost. Uh, homes are lost. A helicopter, very funny looking helicopter, is lost. It's but they determine it's not a typhoon. It's it it could be Godzilla. Um, so an emergency research team has to come together. This was very reminiscent of Jaws. Uh, the scientists want to go out and explore, and they're sort of led by Dr. Yamane. Um, and I was really worried about the scientists because they did not seem like they had radioactive protection, and they were just walking <laughs> around in this yes. destroyed village, and they were picking up lots of radioactivity. And you'd think, boy, these are the Japanese that have just been through this 10 years before. Why aren't they properly <laughs> yeah, protected? Put a suit on. So I was worried about that. Uh, so the villagers end up running around. They're trying to avoid Godzilla. Um, it seems like H-bomb testing has forced uh, Godzilla to come from its underwater cave, and Godzilla is pissed, and he's irradiated, um, and they've proved that he comes from, or it comes from, the Jurassic era, mm, connection to yeah. Jurassic World. Um, public officials don't want to scare the public, so they're not really announcing that Godzilla's out there on the prowl. Um and you know, the public would spot him, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. He starts attacking, um, and there's this idea to kill um, uh, Godzilla by any means necessary because they want to keep shipping open and make sure that he doesn't destroy the economy and the culture. Um, this film sort of has a group protagonist. I don't really feel like it was any one human who led the story. You've got Doctor Yamane who's researching dinosaurs and he wants to deal with Godzilla, but not necessarily kill him. I think his understudy is Dr. Serizawa, who's yeah. um, creating this thing called an oxygen destroyer. Um, and he's originally he's the fiance of Emiko, who is Dr. Yamane's daughter, but she's sort of picking up with um, this salvage ship worker. Yeah. Um, whose name is Ogata, I believe. Um, so there's, and they're all, they all kind of play you know, fairly sizable roles, but I wouldn't say anyone is the, actually the protagonist. It's more like the Japanese people against this, um, this threat of Godzilla. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Sarazawa is the real deal. I love the, the Bunsen burners, the stemware, dials, gadgets. He's got all this stuff in his uh, laboratory as he's um, creating um, uh, this oxygen destroyer, which we'll talk about at the end of the film. Um, this eye patch that he has really makes him look, looks him look like a character out of a video game somehow, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah, really, yeah. really it's kind like of strong, kind of crazy scientist doctor. vibes. Yeah. Um, here's what I liked about this film that I didn't like in Jurassic World was that there's one point where, he, where Godzilla is marauding... Uh, uh, Tokyo, and he has an entire like toy train in his sock puppet mouth, and I thought that was scary. I mean, he's just eating not only the people; he's eating the damn train, train. car, um, and it's just a it's you know it's just a, it's a plastic you know doll doing it. But it was so much more scary, I thought, than Jurassic World because this guy actually eats people and other stuff. Um, 
there's the uh, they build a, a wire fence around uh, Tokyo to try electric electrocute uh, Godzilla, which is I think that's sort of the classic scene that we every everyone's seen. Um, he's yeah. sort of walking through these um, electric lines and sparking, and he's getting uh, he actually sort of starts to irradiate his back fins or. Um, doing things, and he can freeze or put things on fire with his breath. Um, so Godzilla's got some talents that are very clearly scary, and um, he really, I don't I mean, Godzilla's mad. It's personal in this film, you know? It's like the H-bomb is impersonal, it just gets dropped. Godzilla, he really wants to mess people up and cause destruction. Um, it's interesting, though. It's also, um, like, even though... The filmmakers are really struggling with, you know, the the technology of the day to make things uh, seem real. Um, it's slow and deliberate. I think if they'd had lots of quick cuts, it probably would have looked more real. But the decision was to sort of, you know, embrace the low tech and um, just make it work. Um, and with the technology of like Jurassic World, you could actually, ironically, I think you could slow things down. It would probably be more believable that it's yeah. this mixture of high tech stuff and quick cuts that almost makes it look less believable and less scary. I think I just want to be scared if I'm going to see these films. There, there should be some sort of a threat to me, even in the seat in the, in the movie theater at my home. So I was a little uh, taken aback by that. I mean, I, I much preferred the, the slow action of the, the miniatures um, than quick cuts of like these entirely CGI-filmed uh, Jurassic World. So um, it was interesting. It was interesting. Um, I must say, I was going to say that they... I mean, it's it's kind of famously looks ludicrous when you see it in short, yeah, short bursts. So that, you know, it's just a man in a suit. I can remember yeah. seeing Godzilla movies as a as a child, and my mother, yeah, you know, complaining at the screen. Oh, it's just a man in a suit. Why is that scary? Um, yeah. But uh, one of the notes that I made when I was watching this actually was that it's almost there's kind of there's a real physicality to it. It's um, and it's not necessarily realistic, but that physicality gives it. You know, a real kind of um, sense of, I don't know if it's like threat or just of being there. It, what it reminds me of, there's that very brief dance that we see about, you know, the, the remembering sacrificing the maiden to Godzilla. And yeah. we've got people wearing kind of these you know, strange masks who are obviously, you know, being representations of Godzilla in the in the dance. And then we have a, you know, a similar representation of death as Godzilla in a man wearing a different kind of suit later on yeah. in the film. They kind of mirror each other. Mm -hmm. There's something about these practical effects, which I think are actually more, just more visceral um, than kind of CGI and lights. And there's it, just something about the fact that you could reach out and you could touch. There was a real Godzilla that you could touch, yeah. even though it was a man in a suit. Yeah. You know, th th that, that, I think, is what gives it this, this kind of tactile quality. So you end up with some, yeah, un unforgettable images. I think it's yeah. just brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Ludicrous, but brilliant. Um, and but, uh, sadly for the people, a lot of their solutions do not work. The electrocution doesn't work. They've tried to, routing them out with airplanes. That doesn't work. So the it comes to Sarazawa and his oxygen destroyer that they decide to use. Um, it sort of like vaporizes the the creatures. And, and uh, Emiko, the daughter of the uh, the doctor, um, has seen it. She was terrified by it, but she's the only one who's seen this thing in action. And we we sort of see what it does at the very end of the film. Um, it involves some deep sea diving, though, mm. and it's interesting because her uh, Sarazawa, who is a uh, uh, because of fiance, um, is going to be joined by Ogata, her new boyfriend, possibly a future fiance. He wants to marry her too. Um, and they get into these old uh, these old suits, and they go down with the oxygen destroyer. 
Um, they sort of hunt out uh, Godzilla in its own world. They're using a Geiger to find uh, Godzilla because Godzilla is so radioactive. Um, and, of course, um, Sarazawa is sort of uh, conflicted because he doesn't want his invention to be used to cause more harm. So I, I like this. There was a Prometheus theme in there where he was mm. stealing this technology and he was using it, but it was going to destroy the world. So he ends up sort of going down with his invention um, but taking uh, Godzilla out in the process. Um, and uh, so he dies. He sort of sacrifices himself and has destroyed the the, I don't know, the recipes for the oxygen destroyer. Uh, so we do see this final scene where Godzilla comes up for one final scream and then sort of vaporizes down into a, a dinosaur skeleton. Um, and uh, the, the, you know, the immediate danger has passed. Um, it's interesting. Godzilla looks like a plastic toy in a little jar of Alka-Seltzer at this point. just going to be bubbling <laughs> away and the skeleton is there. Um, it ends kind of on a sequel setup where Dr. Yamane is saying he can't believe that Godzilla is the only one of its kind. So... As we know, it's not going to be. But it closes back on a, the calm over the ocean. This time we're going into the ocean. It's got that bookend image of, from the opening. So it feels very satisfying. Um, and it's definitely about, you know, uh, the anti-nuclear movement and, and soft power to a certain extent over war. Um, and, I, yeah, I do worry that, you know, the, the great metaphor and even the achievement is sort of dumbed down and detracted by so many sequels. You just see it again and again. So instead of having the power of the one film that really resonates, I feel like it gets watered down with uh, too many sequels. Um, but yeah, there's great great themes of um, like humans unleashing Pandora's box, and then only yeah. one scientist really is willing to you know be aware of the consequences and say no. That you know the madness has to stop here. So uh, great film. I really enjoyed it. I think it's, it's really great. It is full of. You know, apart from Serizawa, the only person who comes up with a, a solution for the Godzilla problem, it's basically it's just people reacting to the unstoppable, isn't it? There's, yeah. you know, it's very quickly obvious that there's nothing you can do about Godzilla. He's unstoppable, you know, too big, too strong. All yeah. we can do is cower. There's this, you know, there's a whole bunch of um, you know, real, real kind of pathos scenes. Um, there's a kind of a mother and her children sheltering like uh, un under like the, the the roof of a building. As Godzilla advances and she says, oh, you know, we'll be joining your father soon. Um, you have to presume, yeah. well, was the father killed yeah. in the war? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I don't think I don't think you get any ray of sunshine. You don't see those characters again, do they? I mean, I, don't, I think no. they are killed. I mean, it's, you know, and it's rare that you'll see a movie where um, the, the makers are brave enough to murder a whole family. Yeah. Uh, and, but they and, do. And, uh, they do. And that's why, again, that's why the threat is there and it's real. And, and absolutely. that's why it's so much more meaningful. And even for the survivors, um, uh, when you know, the scientists are inspecting them in this kind of makeshift refugee camp, mm. um, and you know, they run their Geiger counter over yeah. the children, and they're all radioactive. It's you know, it's just it's a yeah. proper tragedy. It, uh, clearly, it's you know, it's a film about um, being victim of uh, nuclear war, um, yeah. and, and one of the characters literally says, "Oh, not again! I barely escaped Nagasaki." Yeah. Um, so I mean, they're, they're not hiding the themes uh, for this film. They're wearing it on their sleeves. This is clearly yeah. what it's about. Uh, today, nearly 70 years later, though, I think it, it works just as well as being a story about climate change as well. Yeah. That, yep. You know, there are a few people who are trying to keep the shipping lanes open, but the rest mm -hmm. of us are just cowering in the face of the unstoppable. Yeah. It's you know sobering and sad that the, the film you know, is as contemporarily relevant as it was back in 1954 mm -hmm. 
And it's, you know, it does operate on the level of monster film. And I guess, you know, there were probably earlier monster films, definitely the old Frankensteins and Draculas and things like that. So it does operate as a monster film. Um, but it's a different superficiality. This is also like a mass mass audience kind of film, but its superficiality is dark and meaningful, and you know they're really addressing history immediately. You know, this is ten years from from World War Two. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think you know, yes, it's surface, but it's not surface meaningless surface. It's just a very clear message about nuclear power and environmental degradation. It's interesting what you were saying about being a noir movie. Cause, yeah, a lot of the film does happen at night. Um, yeah. And uh, it's beautifully photographed. And uh, if it had been made in color, I think it wouldn't have the same impact, actually. There's something about it. I don't know whether it means that it has a little bit of the look of a a, a war-era um, newsreel. Yeah. Um, or whether it's just that the starkness of the photography means that you are not distracted by you know, the color. You have less reason to feel... Um, taken out of the experience and recognize, oh, it's just a man in a suit. Yeah. Um, the, like the the famous scenes you were talking about when Godzilla is being electrocuted by the massive power lines, you get mist and steam um, sparking up everywhere. And kind of that's when Godzilla is at his most frightening, when you yeah. kind of can't really see him. It's like yeah. that first glimpse of Godzilla when you just see his face appear over the mountain ridge and you don't see the rest of his body. Yeah. Um, or you know the scene when he's dissolved at the end, and all you can see yeah is just this massive figure um, in the kind of the, the fog of the ocean. It's um, you know it's a great example of how the less you see, the more frightening something becomes. Precisely. They've, you know, yeah, they've really taken advantage of of what little resources they had. Yeah, and I think color would have been an option probably in 1954. And uh, some of the later films are definitely color. The ones that I saw on TV as a kid are definitely color, and I think they they look less real as a result. I think they're also moving towards more of a looks like more of a claymation style by the time the the late 50s and early 60s come along. And those films don't look as realistic to me or as frightening. So uh, it does benefit from a couple of things there. Yeah, definitely the black and white. And also, as you said, yeah, just not seeing the monster because it would look cheaper, I think, obviously, and less less scary if you saw it too much. But uh, you definitely see full shots of Godzilla all the time. But it, it's a while. It's probably 30 or 40 minutes into the film before you really see the whole picture and, and, and all of his menace. Yeah, it's beautifully done. Far less cheesy, I think, than anyone would expect coming to Godzilla if they only know him from either the yeah you know, the, the the cable TV daytime movies yeah. or the 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 pop culture icon. Yeah, you know, there's something really kind of um, yeah, you know, stomach churningly frightening about Godzilla. They had to be doing something right if the film spawned thirty sequels. You know, so yes. um, oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. This is this is uh, you know a home run. Yeah. It is. It's a it's a bizarre bit of nostalgia too, though, because I mean, obviously, it's such a horrifying theme and a horrifying predicament. But I loved watching it as a kid. I loved watching it again now. So it's, <laughs> I felt uncomfortable being nostalgic for it. Uh, but uh, yeah, certainly a masterpiece. And uh, interesting that uh, Honda did more films with uh, Kurosawa because they just seem like totally different filmmakers. But they were apparently lifelong buddies, and they and Honda worked a little bit uh, on some of the later films of uh, Kurosawa, like in the 1980s and stuff. So they both had long careers, lived to be healthy old men, and uh, and obviously both of them talented filmmakers. So if you're going to have a nightmare tonight, I presume it's going to be Godzilla featuring and not the 
Gigantosaurus Pex yeah. or what, yeah. whatever it was we were supposed to be frightened of in the in, in the in the Jurassic film. Yeah, I can't get that uh, that idea of the train car in Godzilla's mouth out of my mind, and I'll wake up laughing when I see a massive dinosaur head come within inches of biting off some A-list actor's heads. It's not going to happen. The actor will survive. The character will survive. It's not scary. Yes, they always survive. They always survive. Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, we seem to have survived to the other end of another episode. What a, yes. what a, what a seamless segue that was. I feel <laughs> like such a pro. That was good, wasn't it? It's almost yes. like I've been planning it. And, um, so, so yeah, uh, two monstrous films. Uh, we have been the Two Real Cinema Club. Do join us next time um, when we're going to be watching other two movies. Until then, uh, check us out on the web and see you next time. Thanks. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.